we didn't know how big this space was and we didn't know all the different players, but like every week we're on the phone with the bank that's saying, Hey, could we use it for this? Or is this something you can do? We're sitting there like, yes, yes. And yes. Right. We've tapped this vein that has been ignored for so long and there's just so much opportunity. Welcome to the operate podcast, where we give you a behind the scenes look at company building from the perspective of the builders themselves. This is how we operate. Welcome to the Operate Podcast. I'm Kerry Ransom. Today's episode is sponsored by Bank Tech Ventures, the first strategic investment fund designed by the community banking industry for community bank innovation and investment. Bank Tech identifies leading products and technologies for community banks and then works with the founders of those companies and their teams to maximize the impact for both community banks and their businesses. If you're a bank looking to innovate and invest in the future or a founder who wants to work with community banks, reach out to Bank Tech Ventures at banktechventures.com. Well, Nathan Baumeister is my guest today. I have to say, I've really enjoyed getting to know him over the last year. He's currently the CEO of a company called Z Suite. He's also one of the co-founders, and they have a really compelling founding story, partly because of how relevant it is to community banks and, and banking technology. Uh, he's been in the bank technology industry now for over 15 years. So we'll also talk about that and how it's evolved and, and continues to change. He's both an entrepreneur and also just a natural leader. And I always enjoy our conversations. Nathan, thanks for joining today. Oh, couldn't be more excited, Kerry. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So I just talked briefly about the founding of Z Suite. You know, just to sort of lay it out, it started really within a bank itself. So let's talk about that story and and please share it with us. Yeah, absolutely. So um, a community bank out in Massachusetts, suburb of Boston, Arlington, have some very, very forward thinking leaders. It's a family owned bank or majority family owned bank. Sushil Tooley was the founder and CEO and his son, Jay Tooley, was the president. And they had identified some opportunities in the bank and a way to grow strategically, it was with property managers. They had a lot of their loans, but didn't have a lot of their deposits. So they wanted to get their deposits. And as they were looking at that possibility, they're like, well, what can I do to differentiate myself? What can I do to stand out in the crowd to be able to get them to actually move their operating accounts to their bank? And so they had this real simple idea. This was back in 2015. A lot of their landlords, they went and talked to their landlords, were still collecting rent with checks walking door to door, just picking them up. They're like, well, we have these ACH capabilities. We could maybe build something in the web where we could automate rent collection. And maybe if they use that, we give it to them for free, but all of the rent has to be deposited at a bank account with Leader Bank. And they took that inkling of an idea. Instead of just leaving it there, they actually picked it up and ran with it. And they started iterating on building out this little product. They ended up calling it Z-Rent and had a lot of success. And I think they caught the bug of the idea. It's not about developing products in-house, but developing this idea of let me talk to a very specific target customer. Let me find some needs or pain points that exist and let me figure out a way to serve it. And in a way to serve it, it could be partnering with someone else or it could be you know developing something in-house. But they kept pulling on this little thread because they then, as they were talking to property managers and landlords in the Boston area, they started hearing about all these pain points with their tenant security deposit accounts. So they built a little SaaS tool to automate a lot of the compliance with that. Super complicated, what Massachusetts requires from a state law perspective. And they had even more success 
So much so that other banks started saying, hey, these cool products that you have, can we license them? Sushil and, and, and Jay, as they were looking through this, they're like, well, we're not really a SaaS company. We don't really license products to other banks. Maybe though, there's a big enough opportunity that we want to do a spin out. You know, then they're Boston area. So they were familiarated, familiar with numerated from Eastern Bank. Um, I know a lot of banks are familiar with like Encino from Live Oak. And, you know, there's various different examples of that. Like maybe we have something here and they decided to do that. But their first decision or their first thought process was, well, we're a bunch of bankers. We should probably find a fintech guy or gal that has done this before to join forces with as we spun it out. And that's actually how I got in the story. We ended up getting together, having melding of the minds of, okay, well, what is it that we're actually thinking about building? Sure, we could start with these products, but what need are we fulfilling in the marketplace and does it need to exist? And uh, we decided that there was something there and we co-founded uh, Z Suite Technologies. We're, we spun out completely from the bank. So we are not a child company or a subsidiary of Leader Bank, but obviously Leader Bank is still a user of our products and um, have a great relationship with them. And, you know, Jay is my co-founder and uh, chairman of our board. Great story. Let's go a little bit more into that because I think it's just so instructive. You shared some of the other examples, uh, you know, that especially, you know, with bankers, that idea of control, you know, hey, we started this, it's ours. Let's keep it as a part of the bank versus going and finding someone like you that can look at it at least somewhat objectively and say, okay, this worked for your bank and your customers, but is this really a broad need in the in the marketplace? You know, what 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 was it about this group that you felt like, hey, they they understand that if they really want to see this thing fly, they're gonna have to like let go a little bit. Because that's yeah, not, it's a, I, I just have seen too often that not be uh, a very easy conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, I think both you and I have seen that not just with like a spin out from a larger company from a bank context, but even, you know, a founder of a startup company sure. that got it as far as they could, but they're not willing to let it go to mm -hmm. someone else to kind of take it to the next level. So this idea of control and being willing to give up control is something that I have seen and worked with multiple times. So. Mm -hmm. You better believe there's a lot of aspects of the conversation when I was first talking with Jay about this to, to dig into where are they in regards to really letting go control to allow it to flourish versus really keeping on um, a very strong hold on it. The biggest overt decision that they had made prior to me even talking with them that if they hadn't made this decision, I probably would have been pretty hesitant to do it was to spin it out from the bank mm -hmm. and not be a subsidiary from the bank. Um, if, if you're trying to build a SaaS technology company and you're trying to do it within the confines of a bank, you have to realize that both the, the primary reason a bank exists is not for this. Mm -hmm. The um, executive team, as well as the board are not, set up to run software companies, just it's a completely different organization, different metrics, different personnel that you need. And then you go all the way down to the shareholders. Shareholders to a bank are not investing in startup companies. The risk that you have to take, the way that you do capital allocation is just all completely different. Not One's not better than the other, it's just a different profile. And so they, the fact that they had recognized all those things and made the decision that in order for this to work, it starts with a spin out. 
um, really showed me that it they were ready for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were they serious. Were, you know, there was other other things that I looked for and talked through, but honestly, that was the biggest one from an mm-hmm. overt perspective that said yes. Just to share a little bit of story on that, when we were part of the bank, so prior to spinning out, and they had those two products for property managers, for the rent collection and security deposit management, they had a lot of success um, in acquiring new clients and everything. I think overall, the total amount of deposits that the users of our systems had at the bank on our platform was about 20 million. And then across the bank, it was you know close to 100 million. I think it was you know about 90 million or whatnot. Um, but that was outside of our product, right? That was their, mm-hmm. if they had CDs or money markets or operating accounts. Within three years from spinning out, where we then took those initial products and then started finding the other opportunities in the marketplace mm-hmm. and expanding our services, they now have hundreds of millions of dollars mm-hmm. on our platforms, right? And so letting go to allow greater expansion allowed us to find other business use cases that they weren't working through or thinking about. Sure. But once they let it go and with their input, but with the input from our other banking clients and stuff like that, we built something much bigger that have allowed them to exponentially grow off of the successes they had when it was just in-house. Great, great story. So it's been super fun since we've gotten to know each other, watching this company you know, evolve and, and grow. What At what point, when you got involved, did you feel like you you had that epiphany of like, oh, we're we're really onto something? As a as a startup CEO, I think all of us fundamentally believe we can build something big. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Even if we have no reason to believe that, <laughs> um, you kind of have to, right? It's like <laughs> that's why we do it. Yeah. Um, we have to be a little crazy. I mean, quite honestly, that, that's, right. that, that, that's kind of built into our DNA, I think, a little bit. Um, so when I first talked to uh, Jay over at Leader Bank and I looked at the products that they had, I looked at it as a business of, okay, they built some property management technology tools that are going to be distributed through banks. That's kind of the way I was thinking about that. I was like, I don't, I don't know how big that can get. Like, I'm sure there's a market for it, but I don't know how big of a market there is. But what what Jay and I talked about where I got excited was that the next phase of building out digital tools for banks is to not build general purpose commercial tools, but more niche focused or vertical focused tools. And we're like, hey, so we start with property managers, but where else can we go? What other vertical based tools? And I got excited about that. But I mean, just to be honest, I was still in theory, right? Mm-hmm. So the big aha moment wasn't there. And also it scared me a little bit. Because I was worried that if every time I opened up a vertical, I was going to have to build and manage a new technology stack, Mm. which you and I both know as a startup company to allocate capital in a way to manage and build multiple different technology stacks is basically impossible. I mean, it's that whole thing of, you know, as I would say, like the moment you start writing code, you're accruing technical debt. Yeah. And, you know, there's sort of the, the planned and unplanned, but. It's all debt. It's all going to happen. Day, and you're going to have to manage it. I was worried about both of those things. We'll figure it out, right? You get good people yep. and you work on yep. a problem together and you, you figure it out. The aha moment came after talking to multiple banks post spin out and we were sharing our two products and the overall vision. This conversation just kept happening over and over again, where they saw our tenant security deposit product, which it's, it's an example of an escrow account. 
Mm-hmm. A landlord is holding a tenant's money for a portion of time, but it's not the landlord's money. That's a, an example of an escrow account. And when we shared that with banks that were in the space, they said, hey, that's cool, but I'm like, Ooh, but what? Landlords aren't the only ones that use these escrow accounts. Oh, well, who else? And then they start talking about law firms. They're like, mm-hmm. any more, anyone else? And they start talking about municipalities. And they're like, well, anyone else? So they start talking about nursing homes and then funeral homes and nonprofits and 1031 exchanges. And what was interesting is so many of the verticals they mentioned were actually in like my in- initial investor deck when mm-hmm. we were raising money saying, we're going to start with property manager and then we're probably going to look for law firms and municipalities. And the big aha moment was twofold. One, when we kept hearing the same thing over and over again, whether it was a billion dollar bank or a hundred billion dollar bank, we were hearing the same thing. Not a lot of good services, a lot of manual um, manual work, um, but a lot of really good deposits in this space. That was one thing. But the other was, I can build one platform. Hmm. I could build one platform that can then be configured for multiple verticals, which took care of the other big fear that I had. Mm-hmm. And when we put those two things together, it was like, all right, not only do we believe we have something, we know we have something. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I think just so instructive for for others on their on their journey of, of sort of how do you figure this out? And and I think key to that in my mind is the the customer interaction that you had at such a high level and high frequency so early. That that's very very useful as as you clearly showed. So you guys recently got to your fiftieth customer bank customer. Congrats! That's that's a great milestone. You've you've been doing this for a while, not just at at Z Suite. Let's talk a bit about selling to and working with banks. Certainly within this banking technology space, a lot of folks with uh, experience and scars and everything in between. What do you find most challenging about it? Let's start with that. Yeah, um, obviously the biggest thing that's most challenging, especially if you're talking about a startup, because time is money, Mm -hmm. right? We're burning cash every day that we're operating until we can build to critical scale. And so, um, you know, a lot of banks look at that and they're like, I don't understand this model. Like, yes, you do, because it's the same thing as like a multifamily or commercial real estate. It's just in those cases, you get a loan to finance it. And then over time, you get cash flows when people rent your properties. Here, instead of getting a loan, we get VC money or angel money to be able to invest in software and then have recurring payments coming into the future. So it's a very similar model. It's just the financing is different, but the longer it takes to get your tenants, right? The longer it takes to get the banks to work with you, the more you have all these expenditures that you have building out the company. And so it it is, it is challenging to sell banks who have um, a lot of very specific regulatory um, and compliance-based due diligence that they need to do before working with um, working with any type of vendor, whether it's a startup or not a startup. And many of the requirements are actually hard to meet when you're a small company or your startup. Mm. So it's this it's this weird dichotomy where it's like, hey, I want the best new technology, but can can we just have the best new technology, but with the financial backing and the balance sheet? of a very mature software company that's been, you know, around for 20 years. But honestly, I mean, I, I have a bunch of friends that work with and run software companies around for 20 years, and they also have a long sales cycle. 
you know, it is it is one of the most challenging things just because time is money. And sometimes it takes a long time to go from initial conversation uh, to when a bank is actually ready uh, to sign on the dotted line and get working with you. So that's the first thing that's challenging. The second thing that's challenging is then navigating the integrations of mm. the technology stack at a bank. Um, that is a, a a big issue in our industry. Um, one that everyone's aware of, and I think there's a lot of great people that are working on doing that, all the way from the largest companies that have been here for decades and decades to newer companies. Um, but that still continues to be an issue is just, okay, how do we actually integrate the different technology stacks? And every single bank has different ways to do that or not to do that. And unfortunately, a lot of those integration options are still based off of more outdated technology than more of the modern stuff. And so it just takes a little bit of uh, you know, harder work and prioritization and trying to figure out how to make that happen. Let's flip to the other side. What do you find most fulfilling about working with banks? Yeah, well... Hands down, I am a true believer in the way that the U.S. system has built out our financial structures, hmm. um, and I love being a part of that. So just to touch on a little bit, and I don't want to go out too far off on a tangent, um, but one of my favorite principles is uh, it's called complex, complex adaptive systems theory. Mm -hmm. uh, which is basically the idea that super complex systems need to adapt to survive. And how does that actually happen? Like, how does that actually come to fruition? And when scientists started asking this question, they were looking at ant, um, ant hills and beehives because, you know, very small-minded creatures able to have super complex systems that can survive, whether it's a drought, a forest fire, um, a flood, a snowstorm, an ice storm, somehow they still survive, right? How is it that these very simple-minded creatures can have such complex mm -hmm. systems? And what they found was if you have very, very simple principles to follow, and you push down the decision-making all the way down to the level of the person that's actually coming in contact where that decision needs to be made, that's where it happens. If you do command and control structures of the person at the top, just saying everything that needs to happen, it works really well to build the initial beehive or anthill. But as soon as something changes, then it's over. Like they can't adapt quickly enough. So when I look at our financial uh, system in the US, we basically have three tiers of financial institutions. You have nationwide and worldwide banks, you have your regional banks, um, and then you have your community banks as well as credit unions, right? And there's different levels and there's different decisions that they can make at those different levels. When you have a command and control structure of like a national wide bank trying to make decisions at a very local level, you're probably not going to get the best decision making. But if you mm -hmm. get a community bank to try and make a decision on um, lending or financing at a national level, they're going to get swallowed up, right? One, they're not going to have the capital, but two, they're not going to have the expertise and the scope to be able to make those decisions. So the fact that we have this really broad array of financial services deciding how to allocate capital in a um, in an efficient and effective way, I love that we have all of those three mm -hmm. different systems. And the fact that I can be a part in supporting that and keeping that alive and well just makes me very excited uh, to do that. And so a lot of the people that have then decided to dedicate their lives to banking and to financial services in these different ways for these diff different communities, they're just great people that mm -hmm. really do care about building out the communities that they're interacting with. And oftentimes are super engaged at the different levels that they find themselves working in. And I just find that amazingly fulfilling. 
That's super cool. And, and I think thank you for orienting as well, because that's not something that many folks just think about if they're not in and around our financial system. I, I think, you know, you and I've talked about that, like just community banking as in its sheer existence is a very unique feature of our financial system compared to any other country in the world. And I think the idea that that makes it more adaptive is a really interesting thing to, to think about. You talked about some of the solutions that you have. Let's go back to the suite. Banks right now are very interested in deposits. You you talked about sort of the initial inception within Leader that they wanted to try to get the deposit accounts from the, the property managers. Let's talk specifically, you're, you're talking to a bank, they're trying to get more deposits and obviously keeping those deposits as well. What What is the value prop today to a bank when you, you think about okay, here's here's how we're going to help you within the community you serve. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the main value prop that we bring to a financial institution is we can help drive commercial deposits. Um, from there, we hope from those commercial deposits that our banks can then expand the relationships mm -hmm. to you know other, other services on the lending side, as well as any other non-interest income generators or whatnot. But... Um, that's the main value prop. Now, when you're trying to build out deposits, there's like big chunks of things that you can do for deposits. You can go after a whole bunch of consumers, which there's a lot of them, but it also costs a lot to get their attention. Uh, they also have pretty specific demands on what they want from a digital mm -hmm. uh, ecosystem uh, that you may or may not be able to fulfill. Then you have kind of like the, and, and that could be on the retail or, or commercial side, their operating accounts on the commercial side, but it's trying to get that root relationship where you have a lot of transactions, you can get some deposits. So that's one side. The other side is you have, the best way that I could say that would be you have their um, investment accounts. So they have excess deposits that they need to sit there for whatever reason, they don't want to put it in mutual funds. They want to put it in the stock market. They want to put it in a bank. Um, or, um, and, and have it sit there and earn some interest rates. Those typically aren't um, the least expensive deposits, <laughs> to say the least. Mm -hmm. And they not, aren't necessarily sticky, right? Because the main reason they're putting the money there is to generate a return. The third group are specialty deposits. And this is typically on the commercial side. This is, these are deposits they have um, specific needs in order to fulfill them. And that's where we fit in. So we can help banks grow commercial deposits our specific areas in the, speci uh, the specialty deposit area. And if you dive a little bit deeper, what our platform does is um, there's these, um, there's trillions of dollars in the U.S. economy that are sitting in escrow accounts, trust accounts, sub accounts, FBO accounts. There's a lot of different words for it, mm -hmm. um, but there's the there are these deposits that have a bunch of hair on them. Sometimes we call them three part three party accounts. Mm -hmm. um, because you have the bank that's involved, you have the person that's managing the money, and then you have the beneficiary or that third person whose money it actually is. And historically, there's very, very few banks that have gone after these deposits. And the reason has become extremely clear as we've dove into this, which is costs a lot of money, not typically on the interest rate side, but on the operational side. So we're talking to one bank, they have about you know 15 clients that they went out and got to manage these types of deposits. Those 15 clients have like $200 million in deposits. Mm. Cool. That's, that's awesome. That's a good chunk <laughs> from very few clients. That's exactly what you're looking for. They have three full-time employees doing nothing but answering the phone all day. 
Hey, what's my sub account balance? Hey, can you open up this escrow account? Hey, can you do this? Hey, can you do that? So the, the, you know, banks always care about their efficiency ratios, right? That's, you know, how much, how much money they have to spend um, in order to make money uh, from an operating perspective. And um, if they have to keep hiring full-time headcount to be able to support these deposits, then maybe the juice isn't worth the squeeze. So what we've done is, is we've built a digital platform to make it so that we can take that operating cost way down. Um, for example, one bank that we work with, they had three full-time employees and now it's like 0.1 of their employees is working on supporting these, um, supporting these accounts, right? So we can make a dramatic difference in regards to that. So now the con of working on these types of special deposits in the commercial escrow and subaccounting field, the fact that they're sticky, the fact that they're typically lower cost has gone down quite a bit um, or is still there, but then the actual cost to operate it based off of our platform, uh, we've been able to manage that. So they look way more attractive. And since this is a newer space and there's not a lot of players out there and most of the technology used to manage it is really bad and very and very manual, there's still a lot of opportunity to uh, gobble up a whole bunch of market share here. And once you have it in place in your bank, you can more confidently go out proactively to try to get more because now, now you've built scalability into your offering. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as you build out the scalability, you also build out kind of the knowledge on mm -hmm. like, what are the types of companies to go after? What are the, the, the typical uh, sticking points, you know, all that fun stuff. But anyways, it's been, it's been really fun uh, to be able to work in this space because honestly, some of our biggest commercial customers from our banks in terms of deposits aren't even in the verticals that we thought mm -hmm. were going to be the biggest verticals. <laughs> we, we didn't know how big this space was. And we didn't know all the different players, but like every week we're on the phone with a bank that's saying, Hey, could we use it for this? Or, Hey, someone called me up for this mm -hmm. or, Hey, um, we just talked to this one new software startup that they need to manage escrow accounts and they just want to use APIs to manage all of them. Is this something you can do? We're sitting there like, yes, yes. And yes. Right. I mean, it's just, it's really cool just because we've tapped this vein that has been ignored for so long and there's just so much opportunity. And that's the beauty of building, as you described it earlier, this configurable platform is that you're not, I mean, you, you may reach some limits on, on certain, but you, you're going to have a lot of new opportunities that you didn't even fully realize as long as the, the key parts are malleable to work with, which is awesome. So let's transition that a little bit into, you know, the roadmap, like what is on your roadmap now for the next couple of years, at least that you're willing to, to share. Yeah, so the the big thing that I'm really excited about is I'm a big fan of focus, so much so it's actually one of our four company values. <laughs> and so as I look at the opportunity at commercial escrow and subaccounting, it is such a unique space. Um, and there's so many different flavors of it because the different rules and regulations change based off of industry as well as geography, like where it's mm -hmm. located. Sometimes the laws are federal, sometimes they're state, sometimes they go all the way down to the city. But there's a lot that we can do to develop to be able to continue to make sure that we automate more and more of these manual processes. So really, as I look at the next three to five years, there is so much that we can dive into to continue to make this world better and build up kind of that competitive advantage for the banks that we're partnered with that, you know, no other software company will be able to touch is really where we're excited about um, and working on there. So the big things in that regard is it's all about 
automation. It's all about taking as many like manual tasks off of the plates of both the banks as well as their commercial customers. And every time we can do that just adds more and more and more value and makes it more efficient for all parties that are involved. So um, there's a lot that we're focused in that regard. We like to tell a lot of people there's a bunch of fintech companies out there that are worried about how to move a dollar. Um, and there's very few that are focused on how to store a dollar. Mm-hmm. So we're very, very focused on how to store a dollar, specifically in complex situations that that could run into different rules and have multiple parties and stuff like that. And then as far as moving the dollar, it's who are you using and how can we integrate with them so that we don't have to get into that business because there's mm-hmm. plenty of people already doing that. So that's that's really where we're focused on. So that means, what does that mean? That means a lot of rules-based engines. Uh, that means a lot of research into all these different types of escrow accounts and all the legal requirements for it. That means a lot of integration because the more systems we're integrated with, the less any humans would have to touch it anywhere mm-hmm. we go. You know, that's kind of where where our roadmap is looking for the next three to five years. And I, I appreciate. I mean, both the focus and the clarity that you have is is really exciting. And just because that um, that that will help guide you. You're not not going to go chase a bunch of shiny objects that uh, sometimes are worth it. But I think in your business, it's it's very clear, and I, I appreciate that. One of the things you were part of, uh, you went through the ICBA Think Tech Accelerator. Wanted to get a couple perspectives from you on that. Number one, I mean, that obviously got you in front of a lot of banks. So I'm sure from an acceleration business development standpoint, probably was pretty productive. But curious both, you know, what value did you feel like you got from that program? And then to founders in general, as you think about accelerators, uh, what advice would you have? Well, first off, I'd say I'm pretty... I'm pretty jaded on what accelerators can bring into the ecosystem. Sure. Um, and when I first heard about the ThinkTech Accelerator, I was I was I was I was pretty skeptical. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, not warranted in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, after we went through the program, I was like, "This is the best thing that I've ever done from a startup context." And I'll tell you the key value point that we got. We were right in the spot of moving from those first two products that we had uh, coming out of leader and our new product, which we call Z escrow, which is the broader commercial escrow and sub accounting system. And there is, there are so many things that you learn as a startup by having sales conversations. You learn how to position the product. You learn which types of banks or, you know, that are going to be interested or not interested you're going to learn on how to what types of questions to ask to be able to uncover those. You're going to find out who is it that you need to talk to within the bank. You're going to find out what type of pricing structures are going to fly, what what type aren't going to fly. And really the only way to get all of that information and that data is at bats. Mm-hmm. That's the only way to do it. There's no, I mean, you can read all the market research reports that you want, but that's not going to get you what you need if you're a startup company, especially if you're more kind of in the blue ocean space instead of in the red ocean space to you know reference that old Harvard Business mm-hmm. Review article. And so um, when you're selling to banks to have those types of conversations, so we talked to over 100 banks. Mm-hmm. In, the program. Those, in the program. In the program. Yeah. Yes, in like a th- three-month period. Mm-hmm. I mean- to have a hundred different bank conversations at the executive level 
um, would probably take two years. And I don't even know how many millions of dollars because you have to, you have to have the people to make the contacts. You then have to actually get the meetings scheduled. You have to get a reason why they want to talk to you. Oftentimes you have to work through multiple levels in the organization before you can get to the executive team. And then the conversation itself of, okay, well, I, I now have a meeting scheduled to go through the process of actually negotiating a deal can take anywhere between four months to a couple of years. And so to have all of that condensed in a three-month period, to be able to get 100 at-bats to practice all those things and learn all of those things just accelerated our learning so much that, I mean, it was it was awesome. It was hands down the best decision that uh, we've made as a startup to accelerate our business, which which when I tell anyone, when I tell them about the ThinkTech, I'm like, no, it's like actually a real accelerator <laughs> in the very name of what it is that's going to help with your most critical problem as a startup. So as you think broadly about accelerators, what advice would you have for founders? If I think broadly about accelerators and founders is you really have to understand what stage you are as a mm -hmm. startup. And then you need to figure out with when you're working with an accelerator, what they're going to be able to help you with. Great, great. Feedback. The stage you're in and what the accelerator can help you with, there has to be a good fit. If there's not a good fit, it will be a complete waste of your time. Um, so as an example, if you just have an idea that you're thinking about developing and you're trying to figure out if you have, if you could have like product market fit and if you want to develop something, the ThinkTech Accelerator is not for you because mm -hmm. that's not what the stage is about. However, there are accelerators that help you go through that discovery process. Those are the accelerators that you're going to want to focus on. But if you're already in product market fit and you're trying to get into the community banking space specifically, and you already have kind of that product and you're trying to figure out how to go to market, this is the perfect, you know, it's the perfect accelerator for you. So it's just having that fit, I think, is the most important piece. Great, great insight. Thank you. Let's let's turn a little bit to talking about you. Oh, no. Uh, I think a lot <laughs> of that is has come out in in the beginning of this conversation. But, you know, I thought you know, I'm always just amazed at, at people who are capable of being a division one competitive college athlete while going to college. And you, you were one of those, you know, just how, how was that experience for you? So, um, I, I've always done athletics. I love sports. Um, at, so I was at the university of Texas at Austin, the, the two sports that I did there, they actually weren't uh, division one, they were club. But they happen to be two sports that don't really have a lot of Div Division One uh, mm -hmm. representation in most other sports. So I played rugby for a year, which I absolutely loved, which was great. But then I actually joined the gymnastics team, and while on the gymnastics team, we were able to win uh, nationals, which was that's awesome. Uh, which was which was awesome. But you know, personally, I am a big believer that there are certain realms in your life that always need to be represented. It's physical activity and competition is one of those realms that I think needs to be represented. So I've always integrated that as part mm -hmm. of my life. Mm -hmm. And so education, profession, family, spirituality, physicality, um, and creative expression are kind of things that I always try to integrate. And so, um, you know, I did that during college and I still do that to this day. What can I say? I like I like walking on my hands and flipping and it was great <laughs> to be able to do that in college. There you go. And compete. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Well, I will say I, I have a little bit of issue because I saw that you finished your undergrad in under three years, right? I was trying to figure out how do I stay a little bit longer. And so 
why would you leave college, especially the University of Texas? So soon. Yeah, it's it's it, it's actually kind of a funny story. So in totality, I was in college for two and a half years, um, but I didn't have a very typical college experience. So I did a year of college, um, and then I actually took two years off, and I lived in uh, South America in uh, in in Paraguay. Which and is, that's a great story. We just don't have time today to go too yeah. deep into that, but yeah. Um, so, I mean, that was a blast, but then I came back and I was kind of, I felt like I was like two years behind all my peers. And so I, I, I was ready to kind of get life started. Um, mm -hmm. so I went on the fast track, I, yeah. you know, pushed the envelope on how many hours I could take in any given time. Uh, but I will say this, uh, during that, my, my second phase of college when I was finishing out, um, also got married and, uh, I called up my wife one day and she had graduated and she was working full time. So, you know, she was, she was taking care of me while mm -hmm. I was, uh, while mm -hmm. I was there. And, um, during high school, I was, uh, I was a competitive diver. And so I was on the gymnastics team. We won nationals and that was great. And I, I made the mistake of going to a diving meet one time and I was watching these collegiate divers and I was like, man, I could compete with these guys. And in this case, they actually, they were D1 NCAA mm -hmm. athletes, right? It wasn't club. It was actually, um, for, uh, for NCAA, uh, D1. So I called up my wife and I said, I have an idea for you. She's like, and she's sitting at work, right? Um, what if I go ahead and get another major? I stay in college for a couple more years and I joined the diving team. She's like, who are you? <laughs> and what do you, what have you done with my husband? I was like, look, no, just hear me out. Wouldn't you want to be married to a D1 NCAA athlete? She's like, no, you want to know what I'm be married to college graduate. <laughs> so, anyways, my, uh, my plans to extend my college career were, uh, were, were, were quickly dashed. But... Okay. All right. Well, at least you tried. Now I feel better that I'm not alone. You, you went into banking technology, um, you know, on your own, right. You didn't. So tell me like what led you there? Yeah. Um, complete, just, uh, you know, circumstances, luck, mm -hmm. you know, who, who knows, um, I always knew I wanted to do startup companies. Um, that's what I studied in undergrad and end up, you know, what I focused on for uh, my graduate work as well. But um, the first industry that I got into was fitness. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, different types of weight loss um, equipment specifically, as well as uh, some gyms and, and stuff like that. Made an infomercial or two, which was fun. But uh, I realized I have a passion for health and fitness, but not for a profession. And I didn't like that industry. So I basically kind of threw that out the window and said, well, let me find a new industry. And through a UT alum job board, found out about this startup company in Austin, Texas, which, are, which is where I wanted to be, um, called Bankview, that worked with uh, community banks, credit unions. And um, I also talked to another company called Bizarre Voice, which is interesting. Both of them go by BV. It was Bizarre Voice and Bankview. Bizarre Voice does reviews for uh, retail products online. Uh, Bankview did you know product development stuff for banks. And I talked to each of them, and I said, "Where are you at?" Um, and Bankview said, eh, we have about you know maybe 40, 50 bank clients." And I said, "How many are there?" And they're like, "Over 10,000." And I asked Bizarre Voice, where are you at? And they're like, oh, we already work with, you know, the majority of the Fortune 50 uh, retail-based companies. And I was like, oh, well, I want to go to the one that they don't have any penetration whatsoever. 
and joined that company. And that's how I fell in love with the industry and learned about the industry uh, was working with that company. That company still exists. They're rebranded now as Kasasa. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very well known within the banking tech industry. So you've been in it for a while. Uh, what's your view on the next decade in banking technology? Yeah, you know, it's um, there's a lot of people that opine on this. Uh, I mean, I can go with all the typical things. The branch is going to go away, right? Like, I mean, we could go through those. I think the thing that's most interesting to me, though, is uh, following the waves of digital transformation that are happening. Um, I think the first wave was very, very much focused on allowing people to self-serve on their own. So it's building out user interfaces and digital interfaces. First, it was for the bank employees to do it. Then it was for the end consumers to do it. Now you're seeing more commercial customers mm -hmm. can do it, but it allows it where before, you know, people had to do a bunch of manual things and move things around and stuff like that, where now they can do it themselves through some sort of user interface. Um, I think the next wave of digital transformation that's going to start to happen that's most interesting to me. I mean, I know there's all the AI stuff and, and machine learning stuff, and, and there's some really cool things going on from that perspective. But if you just get into like the roots of, especially on the commercial side, the pain points, it's double entry. Mm -hmm. You have a company that probably has like four or five different SaaS systems that they use to be able to manage their business. And then some of those have to be integrated with their bank as well. And so they're going from these four or five different systems internally, and then they're going to their bank. And lots of times they're having to rekey information or you know put together some things or like pull out data and upload it. And I think actually creating the systems where you have single entry that then that data can be federated out for all the different systems to take action on that is really the most exciting stuff that's going to be going on with digital transformation for the for 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 quite the next little bit. And then if you add on some of the artificial intelligence and machine learning ideas to that, then the idea is, is what are the decisions that can be codified because it's so repeatable instead of individuals making those decisions, which kind of falls under that same category. Right. Like if you have a human sitting there and they just say, if this, then that, if that, then this, and there's just maybe like five different decision points and actually can be coded out. So you have single, single entry that goes across all the systems, but then are some of those entries ones that could be automated completely because you could understand the rules deeply enough that you don't need a human to make those decisions. And I think when you put those together, from my perspective, I think that's going to be some of the most exciting stuff that's going to be coming. Awesome. That, I think that's very clearly defined and agree with you. That will unlock a lot of interesting opportunities. And, you know, the way I tend to think about it, I'm an optimist. And I know you are as well. Those are the things that will allow humans to be more human. I mean, exactly. we, most of us don't want to do that rote routine, repeatable activity. Let's let the computers do it for sure. Then we can do spend more of our time on creative expression as, as you exactly. talked about. So last couple of questions. I know I, I could sit here for hours and talk because I always enjoy our conversations. How do you keep yourself sharp as a technology entrepreneur and, and as a leader? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, are we supposed to do that? <laughs> just kidding i don't know i yeah i'm so i'm a i'm a big ha big fan of seven habits of highly effective mm -hmm. people and mm -hmm. obviously that always makes me think of sharpening the saw yes. as stephen covey um put that it's it's it is it is a it is a real challenge 
Um, because it's so easy to get sucked into running the business that you forget that you're supposed to be, you know, feeding your own soul in regards to getting better. So I, you know, I, I definitely can't say I have any special, special tricks, um, other than no matter what I'm doing, I need to make sure that I am in front of my team members and I'm in front of my prospects and I'm in front of my clients because they will always push me. Mm -hmm. And when I put myself out there, it's very easy for me to find, well, man, I didn't do so good on this, or I didn't know how to answer this question, or I didn't know enough about that. So that becomes a drive of curiosity for me to continue to improve because I can see that I can do better. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's pretty easy um, in various leadership roles to put yourself in an ivory tower a little bit mm-hmm. and not put yourself out there in front of people where you're challenged and when you're asked those questions or when, when you can really easily find out what deficiencies you have. Um, so that's one way. Another one is I, I I read and listen to things broadly, and I think that is really important. So whether it be through audiobooks, podcasts, uh, reading different articles, um, all those types of things, just always making sure that I have something. Like right now, on my my desk, I have um, I have four books that I'm working for, all for different purposes. Um, I have about five or six different podcasts that I listen to that aren't just business focused, which I think mm-hmm. is really important because mm-hmm. you shouldn't just focus on your own discipline because you'll learn so much by going and in, going into other disciplines outside of that. And I'm always listening to some sort of fiction book. It could be historical fiction. I also mm-hmm. like, you know, the sci-fi and fantasy type stuff um, because I've actually learned a lot about building empathy and character development and those types of things just through uh, just through those things. So um, yeah, don't have any special secret, I don't think, but just, you know, be curious and drive that curiosity and don't be afraid to put yourselves in situations that you become uncomfortable because more often than not, that will, that will drive you to be better. Really good. Okay. Last question. Uh, we'll, we'll end on this one. What are you most excited about for Z Suite this year? This year, what I'm most excited about, we've talked about how every startups have different stages. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really excited that we're moving to the scale stage and it's, it's, it's a new phase for us, right? It's not a new phase for most of the people on my team. Cause we've done it before, but it's, it's, it's doing in this part. Like the first one, you kind of have an idea, you get MVP, you try and find product market fit. Then once you find product market fit, can you actually get repeatable distribution? Once you figure out how to get repeatable distribution, okay, now how are you going to actually support and build Um, the systems, processes, and things to be able to get that scalability so that as customers are coming in, as users are coming in, as banks are coming in, um, that you can, uh, you know, support all those things. So this is an exciting time at the company with new challenges to work through um, that I just look forward to. I think it's, it's 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 a fun place to be. Awesome. Well, Nathan, thank you for joining me. I, I'm super grateful for our partnership. I mean, the Bank Tech team has really enjoyed being part of Team Z Suite and excited for what's ahead in our partnership as well. Um, always such a fun conversation too. And uh, I'm glad we could record it. And let's go make 2023 a great year together. It is uh, 100% uh, mutual. We love working with you and the team and love everything that you're doing and dedicating to the space and helping out on both sides of the coin. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Operate Podcast. If you like this conversation, as a favor to me, you can rate us, review us, or subscribe, or tell your friends. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Operate Podcast. Until next week.